Hello and welcome to episode 5 of the Selvage podcast. I'm Polly Leonard, the founder and editor of Selvage magazine. Our podcast explores the fabric of your life. That's the connection between cloth, culture and creativity. Today we stop and smell the roses, discovering on the way an enduring connection between fabric, flowers and philosophy. I will be talking to a textile researcher who has dedicated her career to preserving and recreating hand-painted chins. And the funny thing is, I know one can explain how and why this is happening, but it is still one of the most intense experiences for me. An expert on South Asian textiles. If you looked closely, both chintz and cruel embroidery contain fantastic, very abstract patterning within the blooms and branches. An advocate for traditional Swedish dress. To wear folk craft or folklore, it was quite common until 1980 in Dalla and the curator of the Dom Robert Tapestry Museum in the south of France. Dom Robert, for me, is an avant-garde ecologist. Each year, as spring becomes summer, I love to walk in Queen Mary's Rose Garden in London's Regent's Park, watching the roses slowly burst into bloom. This year, I found a particular solace in closely observing the flowers as the seasons turned. But then, to delight in nature and to organise some small part of it has been seen through the ages as nourishing for the mind. The Quran says, bread feeds the body, indeed, but flowers also feed the soul. While Cicero said, if you have a garden and a library, you have everything you need. There is no denying we love flowers. And as lockdown eased, it was garden centres and nurseries that many of us braved first. For artists, and particularly textile designers, flowers have proved a limited inspiration. The 17th century was an era of exploration and discovery when live plants were brought to Europe to populate the new botanical gardens. As you can imagine, there was a great deal of excitement and enthusiasm around all things floral. These seedlings bloomed into a shared style across Europe, Asia and the Americas, and early Indian palampores, a type of bed cover, which were hugely expensive at the time, are proof of a conversation across continents that changed and globalised textile design. My first guest today is Renika Reddy, who creates historically accurate and absolutely exquisite reproductions of 17th century palampores. Renuka's work was featured in issue 66 of Selvage. Hello, Renuka, and welcome to the Selvage podcast. Can you describe some of the techniques you have discovered in your research? So while studying historic techniques of hand-painted chins, uh, one of my earliest observations, which is still remarkable to me even today, is in the course of the process, cotton cloth is painted with mordants on the surface and then it is dyed in shade. So on dyeing, the background takes on this reddish tint while the painted areas develop into this beautiful pinks and reds and purples. So to get rid of this unwanted background color, cloth was treated with dung at night. So this could be sheep dung, goat dung or from buffalo and then exposed to sunlight in the day. And this was repeated for several days and, and sometimes weeks if it's you know cloudy weather. 
until the non-painted areas bleach to this um, beautiful pristine white but the painted areas remain bright and vibrant. So there are two techniques that I focused on here. One is how does one dye many different colors in a single dye bath? And secondly, and, and this was far more challenging, is how does one retain those colors after such prolonged exposure to sunlight, you know, especially considering that they were using natural dyes. So this took some time to figure out and, and was a really fun phase of experimentation. Instead of painting with a brush, you use a kalim, a bamboo pen. I'm curious to learn about the quality of line the tool enables you to achieve. So because of the treatment the cloth is given, I find that a column gives much greater control when drawing, especially fine lines. And I think this is because of the, you know, the hard tip of the bamboo pen. You know, it's almost like a fountain pen. And another reason why I prefer a column to a brush is because when wax is used as a resist, and then if one were to paint very watery moderns over the resist, the wax tends to repel the moderns because of its nature. And therefore, this needs a small amount of pressure to paint around the areas around the resist. So I find that a column works very well here. I have come across the term kalamkari before. Can you define kalamkari for me? Kalam means pen and kari means work. So it literally translates to pen work. As any of our listeners who have tried painting on cloth will know, the color runs. How do you prevent the color bleeding? To prepare the cloth for painting, it is first treated with a mixture of myrobalan and buffalo milk, and then it is put out in the sun for drying. So under these hot conditions, the high fat content in buffalo milk gets really absorbed into the cloth, and, and this allows painting with moderns without spreading. While the ingredients may sound simple, process itself can be tricky. So for example, if the cloth is exposed to bright sunlight, but it's a windy day, the surface can dry up before the fat content is absorbed into the cloth, and then this would cause bleeding subsequently. I, I recall in, in one experiment, I thought, okay, so maybe more buffalo will give me better cloth. So I used, I ended up using only buffalo milk without diluting it with water and then exposed the cloth to sunlight. And I recall I ended up with this cloth, which was just so greasy to touch. And the fibers were, you know, on the surface was so springy because of all this fat um, that it was impossible to smoothen the surface for painting, you know, not to mention that pervading smell of stale milk. So there is a fine balance of ingredients and conditions necessary for this step. Do you use dye, which tint the fiber, or pigments, which sit on the surface, or a combination of both? There are four sources of color in my work, and they are all dyes. Interestingly, indigo can be used as a pigment, say on paper or canvas or even cloth, in its undissolved state. But in chins, it is reduced to a dissolved state, and then cloth is dyed in it. So I would categorize all sources of color in my work as dyes. We know about the 16-stage process required to create a traditional ashrak block-printed fabric. Is there a similarly structured method you follow for hand-painted chintz? Broadly speaking, I would say there are about 22 stages in making hand-painted chintz, and this is without counting the sub-steps. So outlines are always done first, 
followed by blues, followed by the inner colors, and then lastly, yellows and greens. I find the production process extremely elegant and really very efficient where each material and process often has multiple roles. So for example, outlines are always done first and the inner areas later. And this can be done together, but the reason it's not is because the models used in the outline and inner area, they can merge and then this would not give a, a defined outline at the end. So there are many such logical reasons behind the evolution of this process. The fantastical flowers seen in the designs are an abstracted, stylized version of real flowers. Where does the design originate? One of the reasons why chins was so popular is that designs were often customized to suit the tastes of specific markets. And one of the markets that demanded floral themes a lot was European market. As uh, Deb Metzger notes, you know, in the beautiful book, Cloth That Changed the World, the demand for florals coincided with the rise in popularity of gardens in Europe, by exploration by natural historians, and generally when botanical illustrations were in demand. So even though florals have always been depicted in Indian textiles long before Indo-European trade, there is proof that design direction was given to Indian production centers through drawings that were actually sent from Europe. So some of the stylization of the flowers could have happened in that interpretation of unfamiliar flora by the Indian artist. And I think part of it could also have been just a creative decision made by the artist himself. It's difficult to say where exactly the designs originated because we don't have any surviving records, but we can only speculate that it comes from this cross-cultural interaction and probably from the artist's own experiences. The tree of life is a fundamental and widespread motif in many of the world's religious and philosophical traditions. It's closely related to the concept of the sacred tree that connects heaven and earth. Does your work have a meditative or spiritual element? On one hand, I think it is the repetitive nature of certain activity. There is this deliberate slowing down of certain functions while, while some become more focused. So, for example, if when I have to beat a cloth, you know, more than a hundred times or when I have to continuously stir a dye bath for two hours, my entire focus is on moving my hand in a certain way. On the other hand, when it comes to painting, I find that a stillness in body and mind is, is very necessary. There have been plenty of times I've just made horrendous mistakes uh, when my mind wandered. Another experience is when I dye a cloth painted with different moderns in matter. And that's a very different kind of experience because I see these different colors developing very slowly right in front of my eyes. It is truly one of the most magical moments. And the funny thing is, I know one can explain how and why this is happening, but it is still one of the most intense experiences for me. This hybrid aesthetic and its regional expressions flourish not only in Indian chintz, but also English cruel embroidery, as noted by Dr. Sylvia Hootsling in her essay published in the catalogue that accompanies the exhibition Chintz, the Cloth That Changed the World at the Royal Ontario Museum. Hello, Sylvia, and welcome to the Selvage podcast. Thank you for having me today, Polly. I'm glad to join you. 
Sylvia, you touch on the link between English cruel embroidery and Indian chintz. Can you describe the similarities and differences between these two textiles? In the early part of the 17th century, these two textiles traditions of English cruel embroidery and Indian chintz were actually visually quite dissimilar. English cruel embroidery from the Elizabethan period is arranged in orderly compartments with lattices and coiling circular tendrils enclosing English fruits, nuts and flowers, such as strawberries, acorns, roses, and thistles. Indian chintz was, on the other hand, made from cotton that has been painted with mordants and then dyed. In this early period, chintz, which was known by the related Hindi word chinth, was primarily made for either the domestic markets throughout the vast regions of South Asia, or for trade to Africa, the Middle East, Iran, and Southeast Asia. The extant South Asian chint textiles from this very early period are sometimes geometric or figural in their motifs, but many are also floral in their designs. And those patterns were centralized and focused on an array of flowers that emerged from a vase or a jar. We know that these large-scale floral textiles were used as panels to line the tents of the reigning Mughal emperors. But then these two types of textiles begin to converge in their visual qualities by the end of the 17th century, when we see both groups of textiles, cruel embroidery and Indian chintz, break out of their orderly compositions or symmetrical patterns, and suddenly they're filled with these snaking vines and oversized blossoming flowers. The leaves on both of these groups of textiles have jagged, toothy edges, and they twist and curl around their tree trunks. And one of the things that intrigued me most was how, if you looked closely, both chintz and cruel embroidery contain fantastic, varied, and then vivid abstract patterning within the blooms and branches and on the rocky hillocks that surround the flowering trees. Was the influence all one way, or is there more of a nuanced cross-cultural conversation? It's very difficult to say which way the influence ran, and scholars have definitely debated this for over half a century. The textile historian John Irwin argued that English pattern books were sent to India, where the patterns were then adapted by the chintz artisans in ways that made familiar forms like oak trees or oak leaves, uh, strawberries, that made these forms very unfamiliar. I'm of the opinion, though, that various visual forms originated in South Asia and then traveled to English cruel work. But what's so interesting is that none of these forms was purely from any one place. For instance, we can see that the toothy leaves come from Ottoman art from the period. The profusion of peonies and carnations in both chintz and cruel work were likely inspired by imagery from Chinese ceramics. Erwin wisely noted that these designs looked exotic to everyone who encountered them, whether they were in India or in England. The commonalities between chintz and cruel work motifs are especially surprising, given the differences in how chintz and cruel work are constructed. Can you describe the cruel work technique? What fascinated me originally about these similarities was just how distinctive the two types of textiles are on the level of their materials. English cork is a form of embroidery that uses long staple worsted wool yarns called cruels. And the word cruel, which is now spelled C-R-E-W-E-L, is very obscure in its origins. It dates back to the 15th century, and the Oxford English Dictionary cites one theory that it may be related to the Dutch word cruel, which means curl, as in the English, a curl of hair. But the OED editor is dubious about this connection. I was interested to learn that in the 19th century, someone who made cruel work embroidery was called a cruelist and a collection of cruel work embroidery was called cruelry. In any case, the embroidery produced in cruel work is quite three-dimensional. 
The yarn itself is loosely spun and many of the stitches used, such as the French knots or the fishbone stitch, which are familiar from other forms of embroidery, create these dense, thick passages of woolen thread that rise off the cloth. How does English blackwork embroidery from the 16th century fit into the development of floral patterns we see today? English blackwork, along with Venetian lacework designs as well, um, certainly contributed to the abstract patterning, in particular that we see in cruel embroidered flowers and figures. Um, the form of embroidery, blackwork, uh, was given its name for its elegant juxtapositions of black thread against a white ground. But one of the things that I find fascinating about blackwork is that it too is the result of circulation of design forms between Europe, Asia, and Islamic lands. Many of the all-over patterns and arabesque designs on 16th century blackwork actually came from Spanish embroidery. This embroidery was known even in the 16th century England as moresque or moresco work, the term for the forcibly converted Muslim communities in early modern Spain. So even the more English contributions of cruel embroidery were in some senses very global um, also in their origins. Since the cloth that changed the world is on display at the Royal Ontario Museum in Toronto, Canada from September the 12th, 2020. Floral patterns are by no means unique and can be found everywhere from Slovakia to Sweden, which is where we catch up with our next guest, Anna Karen Jobs Armberg. She is the handcraft consultant at the Dalarna Museum. Anna Karen's words are being translated for us by Monica Ekavirk Hedman. Welcome to the Salvage podcast. Craft has never gone out of fashion in Sweden. Museum and education professionals have escaped the pressure to rebrand programs as art or design seen elsewhere in Europe. Instead, craft and particularly textile crafts continue to be a respected part of cultural heritage. Although you no longer wear folk dress every day, you do wear it with pride for church on Sunday, with the specifics of your wardrobe governed by the church calendar. Was this the case when you were growing up? Ja, alltså bruket att bära folkdräkter varje dag. To wear folkcraft or folklore, it was quite common until 1980 in Dalla Some wear it every day, but today it's not so common. You wear it... Uh, on special occasions, like in church or celebrations or birthdays. And in Dalla the special area where I come from, we love to wear them. You learned embroidery in your teens and now teach, as well as making all of your own folk dress or bund, as is the custom in Dalla Can you tell me a little bit about Dalla an area which has earned the epithet Valley of Eden, its geography, people, and why you think the practice of making and wearing folk dress has continued to flourish. Dala Floda are really strong on the folk art and uh, the folk dress. It uh, always has been a strong community or a strong building of the woman rights. And the strong woman and folk art was so very popular for people to go to Dala Floda and to take part of the tourism. It was also a lot of artists coming from many parts in Sweden to the beautiful valley of Eden, so to say. So that's why also the name 
the valley of Eden was built. Over the last century, stylized embroidery patterns gave way to increasingly naturalistic interpretations of bouquets of lily of the valley, forget-me-nots, tulips and peonies, with recognisable roses being a particular favourite. Historically, these designs were cut from patterned wallpaper. Where does the inspiration for the floral bouquets come from today? I must say that the most of the inspiration are coming from the older embroideries. There were a lot of very, very beautiful and very good embroidery women who had their own styles. A lot from their material we are looking on and get the inspiration. But of course also we are looking into new flowers and the meadows which we see now. But I must say that the most common is inspiration from the older embroideries. The embroidery you work today is a personal interpretation of a traditional design vocabulary that relates to the floral embroidery seen in Central and Eastern Europe. How much do you deviate from the tradition? Well, I use traditional tools. I use older textiles and the older flower inspiration and make new compositions. I also work now with modern textiles and products. A chenille needle with a large eye and a sharp point is used to work a variety of stitches on good quality fulled wool. Do you find solace in embroidery? It could be the ultimate mindful occupation. Absolutely. Handcraft and working with the hands is so important. It gives a lot of satisfaction. It's very important to work with your hands. It's also something which we talk a lot about today in the science. It gives you a feeling of softness and calmness. And for me, embroidery and the art gives me a lot of pleasure. Actually, I do the embroidery every day. Thank you, Anna Karen and Monica. We can't discuss florals without mentioning millefleur, the thousand flowers that pepper the backgrounds of medieval tapestries, such as the famous Lady and the Unicorn series woven in Flanders in the 15th century. These designs differ from both the curvilinear tree of life, seen in Indian chintz and English cruel work, and the bouquets seen in Swedish wool embroidery. In Millefleur, a great variety of individual flowering plants are depicted in isolation, yet fill the field without connecting or overlapping. Fast forward to the 20th century and the work of Dom Robert, a Benedictine monk at the Abbey en Calcat, located in the south of France. His work was featured in issue 92 of Selvage magazine. We catch up with Sophie Garangas, curator of the Dom Robert Tapestry Museum, Hello, Sophie, and welcome to the Selvage podcast. Dom Robert's fascination with the natural environment began in 1940 when he spent the summer painting cultivated flowers that grew in the monastery gardens. Can you tell me a little bit about the watercolours he made during that summer? 
When he became a monk in 1930, he continued to observe nature in his drawings and watercolors, mainly the flowers present in the vegetable garden of the monastery or in the surrounding countryside. And in June 1940, on the return from the war, he discovered a farmyard with extraordinary vegetation. Then he painted a whole series of large watercolors of it, and one of them would become the model of his first tapestry. It was not until 1941 when he met the painter Jean Lussain, famed for the revival of French tapestry, that he began to consider it as a means of expression. Can you talk a little bit about the meeting and how Jean Lussain recognised the relationship between 15th century Millefleur and Dom Robert's watercolours and how this meeting changed the direction of his artistic career? At the time, it was fully aware of the renewal of tapestry and entered into a relationship with Jean Lursin through mutual friends. But he didn't imagine that Jean Lursin would immediately suggest to him to embark on tapestry design. Indeed, his watercolors, teeming with plants, flowers and animals, perfectly adapt to the aesthetic of the tapestry, but also to the technique. They allowed the necessary interweaving of shapes and colors to solidify the pieces hung on the wall, such as the 16th century millefleur, and that Jean Lursas saw immediately. His tapestries were woven mostly in Aubusson, now one of UNESCO's sites of intangible cultural heritage. Can you talk a little bit about the famed tapestry workshop there and the relationship Dom Robert had with the weavers? Don Robert, during all his career, maintained very strong working relationship with two major Aubusson workshops from 1941 until 1985 with the workshop of François Tabar, one of the actors of renewal of tapestry with Jean Lursa. Then from 1955 with the workshop of Suzanne Goubeli until 1992 when he left tapestry when he became very ill. First, he wanted to know the technique, so he went to Aubusson with the permission of his abbey. In addition, he was always created and numbered his own tapestries, cartoons, and assembled the colours of the wool. His work is a mid-century modern interpretation of Mille Fleur, with an almost folk art-inspired naivety that resulted in tapestries that burst with joy. Did Dom Robert work in isolation, or was he aware of and exposed to contemporary art of the day. Don Robert, as an artist and a Benedictine monk, could be considered as a loner working outside world. In fact, it is not. In 1925, he began to study in Paris at the School of Decorative Arts. Then, he was a designer for the Duchamp Fabrics before becoming a monk. And always he was interested and curious about the art of his time. For example, when he went to Paris for his tapestries exhibition at the Latimer Gallery, he visited the major exhibitions. He liked great abstract painters, especially Jackson Pollock and Paul Klee, and Monet, of course. At the same time, in Aubusson workshops, he also worked alongside Vasarelli, Agam, Le Corbusier, Tourlière, Zaouki. But the simple nature of the flowers of the fields as remain a source of inspiration. The wool gardens of Dom Robert are examples of meticulous observation and a hymn to the environment. Do you think he found spiritual fulfilment in the tapestries? Yes, Dom Robert has found a balance between his religious vocation and his artistic vocation through the practice of drawing into the wild. His watercolors, which have become fields of wool, are part of his vocation as a Benedictine monk who sings the praises of creation. The title of Prayer Rug 
given to one of his tapestry. In fact, a large bed of ambers and butterflies confirmed this. Jean Robert for me is an avant-garde ecologist with his case and respect for the simplest and sometimes the most beautiful things in nature. Jean Robert is teaching us a lesson for our disoriented 21st century. Thank you, Sophie. The exhibition Weaving Nature, Tapestries from the 15th to the 20th century has been postponed and is now scheduled to run from the 17th of April to the 3rd of October 2021 at the Dom Robert Museum. Whether you tend your garden to feed your soul or as a secular pursuit, as Voltaire put it, the best thing one can do is to cultivate one's garden. I hope Renuka, Sylvia, Anna, Karen and Sophie have inspired you to take time out and to smell the roses. Thank you again to all of our guests and to you for listening to The Selvage Podcast with me, Polly Leonard. If you enjoyed it, please leave a review to help others discover us. To learn more about our guests and Selvage magazine, head over to the Selvage website and don't forget to subscribe. Be the first to find out about our next episode when we discover why we're stronger together. <laughs>